your scripture this morning, I would invite you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Book of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start a series called An Old Testament Christmas, where we'll be going through passages in the Old Testament that speak to the coming Messiah. Genesis 3. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 19 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You desire, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you will return. So this morning's the first Sunday of Advent. The Christmas season always seems to come earlier and earlier. You have all the movies and all of the songs and all the gifts and all of the shopping and all of the buying and all the trappings that go along with Christmas. And so this year I thought I would think of a creative way for us to turn our attention towards Christ during this season. So over the course of the next five weeks, 
we're going to take an Old Testament text that points us to the coming of our Savior, that teaches us who Jesus is and why Jesus came, and that is why I'm calling this series an Old Testament Christmas. So we'll begin with Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because this is where it all starts. This is where we see our need and our brokenness is revealed to us, which enables us to adequately rejoice in God's provision, which comes to us through his mercy. In the same way, how can we rejoice in the good tiding of Christmas, which is the focus of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world until we comprehend our need and why he had to come in the first place? In order for us to do that, we must go all the way back to the beginning. As we look at Genesis 3, we're really going to focus in on verse 15. But we read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. We did that because there's some integral parts of the passage that we need to see. And so here's what we, what we see. In verses 1 through 5, we see the temptation that Satan comes in the form of a serpent. And he especially tempts Eve, but Adam was there all along. Then as we move on to verses 6 and 7, we see the fall of Adam and Eve. And then as we move on to verses 8 through 13, we notice God's confrontation. God shows up and he confronts Adam and Eve. And lastly, in verses 14 through 19, we see the curse that God delivers. He first speaks to the serpent and then he moves to Eve. And finally, the curse culminates with Adam. Adam, in fact, is held accountable as the federal head of the human race. And so those four parts are how this passage is broken down. But our focus will be on verse 15. And we will see how it relates to Christmas. And so we have the temptation, the fall, the confrontation, and the curse. Remember, that's the breakdown of the passage. During Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of a baby that was born 2019, about 2019 years ago into a situation that was not befitting a king, but a peasant that was born into some small unknown corner of Palestine. The world would never even noticed, but it was the first Christmas. However, the first Christmas was prophesied thousands of years before it ever even occurred. In fact, at the dawn of human history, the first Christmas was revealed. That is why we wanted to do this study, because we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And so, so when humanity first began, we will see how the prophets of old spoke about a Christmas to come. And so this morning we begin in Genesis, right in the middle of all of the curses. There's a bright shining light of hope. We have the curse of the serpent. He's going to have to eat dust. Sounds like good times, doesn't it? And he will be humiliated. But verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In some ways, we would say this one verse is, in, is the entire storyline of the Bible. It's picked up by the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter 16, where he takes the language of this verse and applies it to Jesus's victory over Satan. In fact, for over 1900 years, this verse in Genesis has been called the first gospel. 
It is the gospel that is contained in the context of Moses' writings where he records the curse, but that curse includes a promise. And so the focus of this message is from verse 15. And the first thing that I want us to see is this. Salvation begins with the proclamation of a curse. Salvation begins with the proclamation of a curse. If we stop and think about it, this is somewhat shocking, especially when we consider how when we try to talk to people about salvation, we rarely start with sin and we rarely start with a curse. But instead, we start with how great Jesus is and all these things that Jesus can do for you and how he makes your life so great. We don't go up to people and say, well, you're a sinner or you're cursed. However, we must understand that salvation begins with a proclamation of a curse. Let's look again at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you will go and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, here's what I want you to notice. When the Lord comes to Adam and Eve in the previous verses in the garden, what did he do? Well, as we read that, he asked them questions, right? He said, where are you? As if he did not know. He asked, who told you you were naked? He said, have you eaten of the tree? He said, what have you done? God did not ask these questions because he was trying to figure out what went wrong. He didn't need to gather information. He was asking these questions kind of like you do when you catch your child doing something wrong. You ever done that? I don't know if parents are like me. Most of them probably are not because I'm weird. But, but I love it when I catch a child in the middle of something, right? They're right in the middle of doing something they know they should not be doing. And I get to sneak up on them, right? I love it. And I say, I say this, this, you can hear these words in my house from time to time. What do you think you're doing? And I say it just like that, right? And, and usually they jump and they get scared. And for whatever reason, I think it's funny because I'm crazy. But, and I have to keep myself sane, sane somehow in my house. So anyway, God was asking questions like, like that. He was trying to get them to respond in a response of repentance. However, when he comes to the serpent... He didn't ask any questions. He just gives him the curse. Look at verse 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you. There's no questions asked. Now, from verses 14 through 19, all we have is this language of curse after curse after curse. God delivering curses to the serpent and to Adam and to Eve and the form of judgment against him. So God is handing down the just judgment on their rebellion and on their sin and on the wickedness and evil and notice that there are consequences for Eve and then there are consequences for Adam. Notice what God does not say to both Adam and Eve. To neither one of them does God say, cursed are you. 
You notice that? He didn't curse them. He does say the ground's cursed because of you to Adam, but he does not declare that either Adam or Eve are cursed. Now stop and think about it. Adam, the rest of his life, had to go around knowing, and probably everybody else knowing, that their lives were the way they were because of him. That he caused a curse to fall on all of humanity. This is all your fault, that we have to work hard. And they'd be right. But God doesn't curse Adam. He curses the ground because of him. But what does God say to the serpent? Cursed are you. But here's the thing. Even in the midst of that curse, there's hope and promise. In God's curse of the serpent, there's a promise for his people. And so it shouldn't cause us to be surprised when we read the book of Genesis and we notice that it starts off with God giving a promise in the context of a curse. That it ends with Joseph saying to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Church, sometimes we struggle with seeing the blessing through the curse. There are times where what consumes our mind is only the curse. We look around and we see it every single day. We see the effects of the fall all around us. But not only do we see it, we experience it. And it begins to consume us. And sometimes to the point that all that we can think about is the curse. But don't you know that our God the God of the universe, the God that we worship, the God of all creation loves to bring blessing out of curse. He takes that curse and he turns it into a blessing. I mean, stop and think about it. Think about, think about the fact that there's a blessing and a curse. Think about one of our Christmas songs, right? What do we proclaim? Joy to the world. We love to sing that song. Stop and think about how, how can we sing such a song? Because if it were not for the curse, there would be no blessing. If man had not sinned, Jesus would not have any need to ever come. That is why we love the third line of the song, or at least I do. If you don't, you should. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. That all begins right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He curses the serpent, but in the midst of that curse is a blessing and a hope and a promise and salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation begins with a proclamation of a curse. Secondly, salvation begins with God waging war on the tyranny of sin and Satan on our behalf. Notice what verse 15 says. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That word enmity means hostility. 
And I find it interesting because earlier the serpent and Eve almost seemed to be best of friends. She talked with the serpent. She liked what he had to say so much so that she was willing to forsake what God had told her and to listen to the serpent. Now fast forward to before God says he's going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent. And what does, she, what does Eve do? She blames the serpent. She blames Satan. She says, the serpent deceived me. Their friendship had come to an end. God exposes this tension. He takes it even further by saying he will put enmity between them. Satan was counting on the descendants of man to do his bidding. But God would raise up a seed that would wage war on the tyranny of sin and Satan. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is God waging war. It is God telling Satan that Satan, I'm waging war against you. Nowhere in any of this does God ever tell Adam or Eve that they just need to try harder. Nowhere does he tell them that they need to get back on track. Nowhere does he say that this is, this is how you take the battle to the serpent, Adam and Eve. Let me tell you what you need to do. No, God's words to the serpent is, is I am declaring war. I'm going to war that will drive a wedge between the woman and, and Satan. He is the enemy and he is going to war against Satan that will drive that wedge between her offspring and him. God is setting up a rival kingdom against the tyranny of sin and Satan. He will create in the hearts of his chosen seed an opposition to evil so that they will wage war against it and will overcome the prince of darkness. This is why Paul tells us the children of the flesh are, are not the children of God, but the children of promise are of the seed of Abraham. They are the children of promise they are the spiritual seed and christ lives in them and they hate satan with a perfect hatred furthermore though the through the seed of woman the singular seed jesus christ would come and there would be enmity with satan Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of Satan and to deliver those who are in bondage to him this is why he was born we celebrate Christmas because Jesus came to destroy Satan. He was born, he lived, and died, and went to glory. And it's why he's coming again, so that Satan would be destroyed. God has initiated the war. He turned to Adam and Eve, and even though they've rebelled against him, they've rejected him, they've done evil and wickedness in his sight, he says, I'm going to war on your behalf. He doesn't say, I'm going to war with you. I'm going to war for you against your enemy, that's Satan. And it's in this direct declaration that we see God setting up enmity between the serpent and the woman. We see this emphasis not on the strength of man, but on the sovereignty of God and salvation. God nowhere tells us that we must save ourselves. Nowhere does he say, here's a, here's a little grace. Take this little bit of grace and save yourself. No, he declares, I'm waging war on the tyranny of sin and Satan on your behalf. Salvation begins with the proclamation of a curse. And with God waging war on the tyranny of sin and Satan on our behalf. Thirdly, salvation begins in an unlikely manner. Stop and think about this. 
We see that salvation begins with a woman bearing a child. It is the promise of a seed, the promise of an offspring, the promise of a child, a child that would be the champion of our salvation. If we look at verse 15, it says between your offspring and her offspring, and the promise of the offspring is a major theme throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, 41 times the term for seed or offspring or child is used in the book of Genesis. So what we have here is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. When we get to Genesis chapter 9, God makes this promise to Noah and he tells him, the promise is to you and your offspring. Then over and over again, the promise is repeated to Abraham. That promise is given throughout the book of Genesis to you and your seed or to you and your offspring, or to you and your descendants, or to you and your children's children. This is beginning of the great theme that is used throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And so Sarah eventually gives birth to the child of promise, and Ruth has to wait to be given a child in an amazing way. And the prophecy is given in Isaiah chapter 7 of a virgin birth. And we go on and on until we finally come to Mary who will give birth to the child who will be the champion of our salvation. And so all the way back here where we have this promise of the seed, which is what offspring means. And that seed is Jesus Christ. The prophet Micah declared, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth of me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. There is no other babe born of a virgin in Bethlehem in which these words can refer to, they are referring to Jesus Christ. Mary conceived and she bore a son and we proclaim to that son, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The theme of a child is picked up in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 where we read, the angel said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You see that night, while angels sang in heaven, and the seed of the woman appeared, the devil entered the heart of Herod, and he began to plot the murder of Jesus. But God the Father preserved Jesus. The apostle Paul wrote, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, do you see what's happening here? Clear back in the book of Genesis, Satan was scheming. He thought that he would use the seed of a woman that God created as a tool to accomplish exactly what he wanted to accomplish. Satan thought he could use her to bring destruction to the human race right from the beginning. But God had a different plan. God knows Satan's plan. And it's like he's saying, that's your plan, Satan? You want to bring down humanity through this woman? Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to use a woman to bring the Savior of the world, and he's going to crush your head. That's what he says. And when you stop and give actual thought to this passage, it's amazing. Because God tells Satan exactly what he's going to do before he does it. 
football teams have gotten in trouble for stealing the playbook of other teams. So they know what the other team's going to do. Can you imagine going into a battle and announcing what your battle plan is? Hey, we want you to know that we're going to flank some people over here to the left. And then uh, these guys are going to come, come up the middle here. And then we got these guys circling around and they're going to... Can you imagine just telling someone what your battle plan is? I don't know if you've ever watched Despicable Me 2, but if you have kids or grandkids, chances are high that you've watched it. I've probably watched it, I don't know, a thousand times. Well, probably not that many, but I've watched it a lot. Lucy comes along in, in Despicable Me 2 to recruit Gru for the anti-villain league. Gru has a problem. He announces his weapons before he fires them. And sure enough, that's what he does. Pulls out his weapon, announces it, fires. Lucy is able to not be struck with it. And then she tells him, it works better to announce the weapon after you fire it. And she knocks him out with her lipstick taser and announces, lipstick taser, right after she knocks him out. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? The point is, you don't tell the enemy the plan beforehand. And yet, God tells Satan exactly what he's going to do beforehand. God tells Satan exactly what's going to happen. Satan sought to rob God of his glory and do damage to humanity. That was created in God's image by deceiving the woman. And God's response, I'm going to use woman to bring a savior to crush your head. Now here's the thing, Satan tries to stop it. He tries to have Herod kill him. That doesn't work. 30 years later, when Jesus entered his public ministry, guess who's there to greet him? Satan. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and there the seed of the woman fought him, who was a liar from the beginning. Three times the devil came after Jesus, but he stood unwounded, and then the Lord began to set up his kingdom as he called people to himself. And then he took the battle to the enemy. How do we know this? Because we are told that he cast out demons in diverse places. He spoke to wicked and unclean spirits and charged them to come out. And demons were expelled. Legions ran from him. They tried to hide in a group of pigs to escape the presence of Jesus. And they even asked if he came to torment them before it was their time. And what did Jesus do? He overcame them by the power of his word. God announced his plan to Satan. And Satan tried to stop it, but he couldn't. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm convinced that Satan knew his defeat was near. And so he assaulted Christ. He tried to keep him from going to the cross. He said in the Garden, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He said, the ruler of this world is coming. Satan had no claim on Christ, but he still tried to lead him astray. And it was there in the Garden where Jesus sweat drops of blood as he did battle with Satan. He would eventually crush his head. Now listen to me. The conflict of the Lord Jesus Christ continues in his seed. As followers of Jesus, we are adopted into his family. And we wage war. We preach Christ crucified in every single sermon 
that is preached that way shakes the gates of hell. Sinners are brought to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there is coming a day when evil will over, be overcome forever and ever. As John wrote in the book of Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. And the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. God has promised that there would be a champion. The seed of a woman. Who would wage war against Satan. And that champion has come. His name is Jesus Christ. He is born and through. And though the dragon still wages war with those that bear the testimony of Jesus Christ, which would be you and I if we know Christ as Savior, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord is the victor. His name is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And we belong to him. Listen, church, the very thing that Satan tries to use against us God takes and uses for his glory and our good your salvation beginning with a woman bearing a child who is the seed who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself is eternally secure and there's nothing that Satan can do about it number four salvation begins with a dual promise of death and victory. As we look at verse 15, we see this promise of death and the promise of victory. It states, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a picture of man versus serpent. It's a climatic conflict between one individual and the serpent. He singular shall bruise your head and you singular shall bruise his heel. Have you ever killed a snake? I don't know if you've ever done that. Most people, if you kill a snake or you want to capture a snake, you find a forked stick or some way to trap the snake's head. And then, if you're killing it, you cut off the snake's head. How does a snake kill a man? Well, typically the snake strikes many times at the heel. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but... Why doesn't this verse just stop with, he shall bruise your head? That's a great ending, if you think about it. Satan, you think you've won, but you haven't, because the seed of the woman's going to bruise your head. The end. That doesn't end there. Yes, the Lord will take Satan out. He will have victory over him. That's not where it stops. Instead, it says, God tells Satan that he's going to bruise his heel. There's one who's coming into the world, born of a woman, that will have victory over you, but that victory will come at the expense of his own life. You will strike his heel. You will kill him, but when you do, he will raise many to life. At the cross, Satan bruised Christ on the heel. And at first, it seemed like the cross was his greatest victory. And a terrible defeat for God. But Christ rose from the dead. Do you see it? Salvation has the promise of death and victory. The only way for the curse to be reversed is for the promised seed to bear the devastation and the curse in our place. 
And so God is saying, I'm, I'm going to send my son into the world. And he's going to gain the victory. And he will do this by bearing my curse of death and damnation. Now I want you to fathom this. I want you to wrap your mind around this. That nowhere in the passage does God curse Adam and Eve. Nowhere but to his own son. He says, you will bear my curse on the cross in their place. And in the place of everyone who trusts you as Savior. Do you understand that? We don't get the curse. God does not curse Adam and Eve, but his own son on the cross, cry out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he do it? Why did he forsake him? Because of the sin that was on him. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And because of the sin of you and I. Because my sin, God turned away from his own son. Oh, what love. That Jesus would become the curse for me. Because I couldn't be it. You see on that cross Satan thought he had won. But he thought was. What he thought was his greatest triumph. Was actually the eve of his worst defeat. He thought finally he had gained what he had been after all along. He didn't realize that he was actually carrying out the sovereign plan of God. And so here, where Adam and Eve could expect to be condemned to hell for their sin, God makes a dual promise of death and victory. Amazing grace from God. What does that all mean? What does this mean for us at Christmas time? We see that babe in the manger we see that salvation begins with the proclamation of a curse with God waging war on the tyranny of sin and Satan on our behalf in an unlikely manner and with dual promise of death and victory if we consider all of this and we don't leave here with salvation or we don't leave here with a greater appreciation of the promised Messiah then we don't understand Christmas If you think Christmas is solely about a babe in a manger or about presents and gifts and lights and Christmas trees and everything else, then you don't understand Christmas. If you don't see beyond the babe in the manger to a crucified and risen Savior, you don't understand Christmas. Let's relate it to our experience. We, by our very nature, are heirs of wrath. You and I. It doesn't matter how godly your parents are. It doesn't matter how godly your family is or anyone else. We, by our nature, are heirs of wrath. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is not to them which are born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but only to those who are born of God. The Bible is clear. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You can't make it something it's not. 
And we are not reconciled to God, nor can we be apart from a supernatural work of God. We know nothing of this baby born in a manger. We are the, the seed of the serpent, and it is only through regeneration that we can know Christ as our Savior. So what does God do for his chosen ones? He saves us. And how? If we are born of the flesh, we can't please God. How are we going to be saved? All we want to do is sin. He does it just like he did in the garden. He puts enmity between us and Satan. That's the first work of his grace. You see, before there was peace between us and Satan, we liked it. We like to sin. We would give in to temptation, not think twice about it. We live for ourselves. Whatever Satan taught, we believed. We were his slaves. However, something happened. We began to feel uneasy or dissatisfied with the pleasure of the world. You perceived that you were living in sin and you were miserable. And though you could not get rid of the sin, maybe you hated it. And you began to see just how wretched you were. That wasn't because of something in you. That wasn't you suddenly deciding that you didn't like sin anymore. It was because God in his grace had ordained you and was revealing to you your sin. The Lord in his mercy was working on you and you didn't know it. You did not know that, that he had planted his seed in you. Until it began to sprout. And you began to hate sin. It was that way at your conversion. And it is that way now. But now we. We have this relationship with Christ. And perhaps we hate sin. More and more. And we love Jesus more. Then came Jesus that champion of our faith. Christ was formed in you the hope of glory. You heard of him. You understood the truth about him. And it seems so wonderful that he would be your substitute. And you take your place and you bear. And that he would take your place and bear your sin on the cross. It seemed unfathomable to you that he would be the curse for you. And take your punishment. And give you his righteousness. And himself to you. So that you would be saved. And as soon as your heart understood Christ, you realized what the law could not do, Christ accomplished. And that the power of sin and Satan that you were once in bondage to, you now hate. It's no longer has a hold on you. It's changed or destroyed because Christ has overcome it. And then what happens? What happens after you come to know Christ as your Savior? Sin begins to torment you, doesn't it? Have you ever been tormented by sin? Don't act all spiritual. I've been tormented by sin. Satan tempts you all the more. He comes after you. He hunts you down. You begin to doubt the mercy of God and the grace of God. Maybe you even doubt your own salvation. He strikes at you over and over and over again. He seeks who he can devour. And suddenly your worldly friends begin to bother you. Perhaps because they see a difference in you. And, and now you stand before Christ. And they don't understand. You take a stand for Christ. And they don't understand how someone would stand for righteousness. Why would you do that? Because they're at enmity towards God. 
And you're not. And the seed of Christ is planted in your heart. And it's not in theirs. And so often their enmity is displayed towards, towards the one who knows Christ as Savior. Don't expect the world to understand you, Christian. Don't think that you can walk out in the world and have the world understand you. Because it can't. And if the world is understanding you, you may have a problem. Christian, it was never meant to be that way. Satan will not stop his attacks on the followers of Jesus Christ. And he will often use other people to attack you. But take heart. Because we are the conquerors. The serpent's head is crushed. The power and dominion of sin has no power over you. You're born of God not of the flesh. Listen, there are people snatched away from sin that they never could have quit on their own apart from Christ. People's lives changed forever. Drunkards, no longer drunkards. Porn addicts, no longer porn addicts. Adulterers, stopped their adultery. Drug addicts, thwarted. Prostitutes, redeemed. We could go on and on on how Jesus Christ conquers sin in our lives why because of god's grace it is wonderful and it is complete and has nothing to do with us it is because christ has conquered sin in your life we are no longer slaves of sin satan's reigning power is no more in our lives his dominion is broken by jesus christ the guilt of sin is gone satan no longer has power over you because your sin has been pardoned he he brought us under the curse but we We are delivered from the curse by the blood of Jesus. Which is why scripture says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. We are no longer guilty because we know Christ. Listen, the day will come when sin in you will be destroyed forever. The day will come when we will be without spot or wrinkle and we'll stand before the throne of God and having suffered injury and pain and sorrow or whatever may befall us but we'll stand before the throne of God faultless and what a triumph it will be this baby in a manger has come to bring salvation. Started with a curse. But God waged war on the tyranny of sin and Satan on our behalf. It began in an unlikely manner. And with a dual promise of death and victory. May God grant us to hear and understand and believe the message. An American woman was returning from Europe with some perfume she had bought. She went through a great deal of trouble packing the bottles so that they wouldn't be spotted by the customs official. An official started going through her luggage. He had nearly finished searching the last suitcase when the woman's small daughter clapped her hands and said excitedly, Oh, Mommy, he's getting warm, isn't he? (laughs) We can try to hide our sin from God, but it will find you out. Can I ask you the same question God asked Adam 
Where are you? Are you hiding? Afraid of God because of sin in your life? Maybe you're trying to cover up your sin. Just like Adam and Eve did. With the fig leaves of good works. Perhaps like Jonah, you are one of God's children. But you're running from His purpose for your life. You have sin that you've not confessed to Him. Your guilt may make you think that God is after you to punish you. The Bible says that God is after you to save you from the judgment your sin deserves. He is graciously calling. Where are you? Where are you? And if you'll come to Him and confess your sin, He will deliver you from Satan's domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom you will have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how you deal with your guilt. That's how you conquer it. By coming and placing your trust in Christ. And if you already know Christ, by coming and asking for forgiveness. That's how you deal with your guilt. So I'd ask you this morning, where are you? Is Christmas just a babe in a manger? Because if that's all it is, you don't understand Christmas. Let's close in prayer.